and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you're able to stand just a bit longer, I invite you to do so. You don't have to, but if you're able, that's fine. Either way, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read again this week, verses 1 through 7. It's on page 991. If you would like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one right there in front of you. Grab that, turn to page 991, or 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word for us today, and here's what God says. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. No word like your word. Certainly that means every word of yours is true. But your word is living and active. So we pray that your living true word would land in our hearts and souls this morning that we would understand these things, that we would love these things, that we would be changed by these things. So help us to look at your word. Glorify yourself through your word and through how your people receive your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we looked at this passage, the same passage, the same verses last week. this, This passage emphasizes that the gathered church should offer all kinds of prayers. And he samples that by listing four supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings. That, that, that the church as it gathers would offer all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Now we looked at just a small segment, a subset of all kinds of people last week. We looked at just as it, as it leads us to there in um, verse 2, for kings and, and for those who are in high positions, uh, that when we gather, we pray, we pray for kings and leaders, uh, for government officials, for politicians, whatever we want to label that as. Now this week, we're looking at really the same reading again But this week, we're going to look at another kind of all kinds of people that we would pray for, how we would offer uh, supplications and prayers and intercessions and uh, thanksgivings 
for another segment, for, for people who need to come to Jesus. Do you see that in, as it segues at the very end of verse 3? It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then speaking of God our Savior, speaking of Jesus, it says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, so we see the priority of praying for all kinds of people. We see the priority last week of praying for kings and those who are in high positions. And now we see the priority that the gathered church would pray for all kinds of people who need to be saved. All kinds of lost people. That's what we want to think about this morning as we move into the, to the particulars of all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. I'll start with just as, this, as it takes us a line at a time. Our God, our Savior, it says here, desires all people to be saved. It is God's desire. If you're here this morning and you've never turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is God's desire that you would turn from your sin and you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, let me unpack that further. When the Bible speaks of God's desires... Um, it, it expresses or exhibits that uh, in one of two primary ways. Sometimes God's desires are expressed through what he specifically decrees. God wants something, he desires something, and so he ordains it to be so. Think of Psalm 115, verse 3, that says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he is pleased. He does all that, he's, that, that pleases him. Why does this come to pass and not that come to pass? Well, this comes to pass because that's what does God desired to come to pass, and so he decreed it. He made it happen. But I would suggest to you that in this passage, when it says that God desires all people to be saved, it's, it's not speaking of God's desire as it's often exhibited or expressed in his decrees in other words it's this this passage nor does the scripture teach that god has decreed the salvation that is that he has determined the salvation of all people that would be a teaching called universalism that would be a teaching that says actually there is no hell Actually, or if there is a hell, no one lives there. Actually, there is no eternal judgment. 
Universalism uh, teaches that all will be saved. I suppose you could say, well, you mean even if they don't want to be saved? I mean, does, does anybody land in hell? Other than the three that quickly come to your mind. No, we, 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 when we read the scriptures, we, we do not see that the scriptures teach that God has decreed the salvation of all people, so therefore hell is liquidated. Hell does not exist. No, the, the scriptures teach, and in fact, in, in fact, even Paul writing to Timothy in the same book teaches us elsewhere that there is such a thing as hell and that there'll actually be people who are there. So when it says that God desires all people to be saved, it's, it's not speaking of it in the sense of his decree for that reality. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, it says there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, speaking of, of the offices of the church, of an elder, it says, uh, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's a reality in the universe called the condemnation of the devil well, if all people are saved, what do we got to worry about? There is no such thing as the condemnation of the devil if all people are decreed to be saved. Or in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, in verse 24, it says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. It speaks of judgment. Well, why would we have to talk about judgment if all people will be saved? If God has decreed the salvation of all people, then judgment is just a wink and a nod. It's just an irrelevant conversation piece. Or in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 9, it says there, but those who desire to be rich fall into tempta temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Is there such a thing as ruin and destruction? Well, there, how would you have a category of ruin and destruction if there is no hell, if there is no judgment? No, there is a judgment. There is a category there is a place of ruin and destruction. There is a location of existence known as hell. And so, Timothy, this book of Timothy itself, um, rules out the first option that, that God's desire is expressed in his decree. That's the way it is sometimes, but that, that's not how Timothy, 1 Timothy, is, is using the word that God desires all people to be saved. It's not reflecting God's decree of what he has determined will come to pass, but it's the other way that the scriptures describe God's desire. Sometimes God's desire is expressed through his decree, what he decides will happen, and sometimes his desire is expressed through his commands. Now, 
In other words, God desires that all people be saved in the same sense that God desires that all people have no other gods before him. God's desire that all people be saved is is in the same sense that God desires that we not take the name of the Lord in vain. God's desire that all people will be saved is the same in which God uh, uh, says that we should not make a graven image to worship, that we would remember the Sabbath, that we would honor our father and mother, that we would not commit adultery, that we would not murder, that we would not lie, that we would not steal, that we would not covet. Do Do you catch the drift? I mean, there's 600. 13 more commands I could issue, but someone call uncle will stop. In other words, God's desire here is, is a congruent with God's expressed commands. God desires all people to be saved in this sense. He commands all people everywhere for all time to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel declares that Jesus is the only way to salvation. We'll see that in a second. It'll be more explicit. So in his kindness, God commands all people everywhere to turn to Jesus in order to be saved. This is God's desire for you. It's expressed through his commands. In this case, God's desire is not, is not embedded in his decree. God's desire is embedded in his stated duty. In other words, you may, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, just say, I don't know what God wants me to do. Oh, yes, you do. God wants you to repent and to turn to Jesus. Paul would, it would be written of Paul in the book of Acts. So right, right after the noble Bereans, they're in Athens now. Uh, but it, it, it says there as Paul is preaching, it says the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world. Do you see how, I, how, how P- Paul is writing to Timothy and he says that, that it is God's desire that all people be saved? It is using that desire as an expression uh, of, of God's command to us everywhere for all time. It certainly is true. On the one hand, we could say that Jesus invites us to turn and trust in him. I I think of, of Matthew 11. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. That, that certainly is a kind, gentle invitation. And yet it's a kind, gentle invitation rooted in the expressed desire of God through a stated duty that we have, a stated command that's put before us. Isaiah 45 issues that command, turn to me, 
and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Or Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Or Ezekiel 33. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Do you hear God's desire? It's God's desire not expressed in these instances through his decree, but it's God's desire here expressed through his command. God desires that all people be saved. And then it adds to that, which I don't think is adding a second thing. I think it's just elaborating the first thing. Well, what do you mean by be saved? It says, and come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, being saved entails understanding some things, knowing some things. In other words, it takes a body of knowledge, a a, a body of truth uh, for us to know, well, who is this Jesus? What's so special about him as to why we should turn to him? Why it is that God has put this duty upon us? Why God has issued this command? What's so big about Jesus that I've got to turn to him? Because there is no other salvation. And we have to lean into, well, what is it that he did that makes him uniquely qualified to offer the salvation that he, that he does. He expresses that. He says, after he says, then come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is one God. Now, that's as old as the Old Testament. In other words, that's a basic tenet, a basic doctrine of Judaism. Building upon that, because in a sense, part of what Paul and Timothy are interacting with is that this salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who offers that Lord Jesus Christ, is not just a Judaistic thing. It's a, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. You can, you can be any kind of person to be a Christian, that, that Jesus' work was not just to ransom and rescue the, the, the Jewish nation, but that, but that God's going global, which was his plan all along. There is only one God, which is a basic tenet of Judaism, and, and it says, and there is one mediator, which is a basic essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus is our one and only mediator. Now, how Jesus would say that in another way is in John 14, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
The mediatorial work of Jesus is unique. It's the only, he's the only one that is suited and qualified to, to be that mediator, someone who intervenes between two parties where there was formerly a chasm, a, 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 a breach, a rupture in those two parties. A, a mediator comes in and, and he, he, he either makes peace or he restores peace. He, 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 he's that integral uh, person in the middle, the go-between, who uh, forms a covenant agreement between two parties that formerly didn't have any sort of covenantal agreement. Jesus is the only one of that kind. There's only one God and there's only one mediator. In other words, to live in a right relationship. I say right relationship because all people live in relationship with God in that sense. It's just that, it's just that because of our sin and because of God's holy justice, it's, it's a troubled relationship. He is our judge, and we are under the judge's condemnation. And he will issue his sentence, and the verdict is horrendous. But if you're inclined to not want that kind of relationship with God, then you need Jesus. Because to live in a right relationship uh, with the one true God, um, we have to come into that relationship through the one and only true mediator. The only one who is the um, who affects a reconciliation. There is no other way that any of us could live in a right, safe relationship with the Holy God other than through the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's a kindness for God to say, I command you. I command you, I desire for you to be saved, and, and I express that through my command, the duty I put on you. There's no other way for this to happen. If you want this to happen, then you have to turn to Jesus. You have to trust only in Him. No other way. That's what God has ordained. That his, his desire for Jesus to be exalted is ex expressed in his decree that Jesus is the only mediator, the only savior. Speaking of this mediatorial work of Jesus, he goes on to explain uh, that uh, who, speaking of Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. A, a, a ransom describes a price that was paid for the release of captives or slaves. And this one mediator is the one who is the sole ransomer. I know that's not a word, but. 
And in this case, it's not as though he pulled some resources out of his pocket and paid that ransom price. No, he he offered up his whole life on the cross. And it is his death on the cross that is the sole ransom, the sole mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ by which sinners might be saved. Isaiah 53 tells us he bore the sins of many. In other words, the ransom he paid, the price he paid was the offering up of his own life as a sacrifice. It was a substitutionary sacrifice. Ransom. Jesus died in place of sinners. He died for sinners by dying in the place of sinners to pay the price owed to by us before a holy God because of our sins. And what did we owe God? The payment that God could extract from us is the wages of sin is death. And we waited to the end of our life before God wrote us our final check. Then he would add up our work. And uh, I don't know if this is net or gross, but you get the point. He would add up our work and write the check, and the check would be payable to Joe Braden. Death. That's what the wages of my life has earned. I deserve to be left in the enslavement and captivity of my sin. I deserve to be left under the just condemnation of God. I deserve to bust hell wide open. And I suspect you do too. I don't suspect it, but didn't want to offend you before lunch. But God. But God being rich in mercy. Sent forth his son as the only ordained mediator to do what only he was qualified to do as the man, as it says there in verse 6, and as God, as it says there in verse 3, as the God-man. Only God could have made this proper ransom because, because it was God who was offended. And how can I pay off the offense of God? I can't. It's an eternal offense. My little meager, mousy, pathetic sins, while they are finite and limited in that sense, the effect of them is they have up and eternally, infinitely offended God. How are we going to pay that one down? You talk about a large student loan debt. Only an infinite being could satisfy infinite justice. Only an infinite being could provide an infinite mercy. 
And so Jesus had to be the mediator who was God. And yet God didn't do anything wrong. It was man who rebelled against God. And so it had to be a like kind to, to offer himself as a substitute. That, uh, that God would become man in, in, in time and, and be born and yet would die as the God-man. And there upon the cross, the, the, the God would infinitely, in a moment in time, infinitely satisfy the justice of God. And yet in a moment of time, Time that man, man who rebelled against God, would, would have a substitute of like kind being offered before the throne of God. This is what Jesus did. And that expression of God's kindness in Jesus Christ comes to us in the form of a command. Jesus is the only ransom. He, his life is a ransom, it says here, for many. I mean, I'm sorry, for all. It says many in Mark's gospel, but here it says all. And yet that ransom is only effective for those who believe. Those who obey the command to repent of their sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John's gospel, there's a bit of a tension that's put forth. In John's gospel, it says things to us like, whoever comes to me I will in no way cast out. If you're willing to come to Jesus, Jesus will never say, get away from me, kid. You're bothering me. Are you willing to obey the command of God? Listen to the heart breaking words of Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 37, is the very last week of his life, as Jesus stood outside of Jerusalem, he wept as he said, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing there will be a hell and the people in hell will be there because they were not willing to obey the command of God to trust in the only mediator the only true ransom for their sins That doesn't put you and I in charge of it. Going back to John, the verse that precedes, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. He says in, in the words preceding that, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. 
He'll say a few verses later in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless, it is, and, 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 unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yet before he's done, then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. There's this interesting interplay of you and I have a duty to repent of our sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the end of the day, it's not going to be us in a large brag session in the eternal presence of God saying, well, I, I, uh, I'm, I was pretty enough or smart enough or wise enough. I, I did this. No, while we have a duty to repent and believe, when we read the scriptures, we find that even even faith and repentance are kind, gracious enablements from God. So at the end of the day, all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ should be the first people in the line of humility. In a way that's beyond our fathom to comprehend, we trusted in Jesus because God breathed new life into our souls. That the very shed blood of Jesus becomes effective in us because the Spirit takes what Jesus did on the cross and he applies it to our hearts and our lives and gets inside of us and takes off the blinders and transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And, and so we now see Jesus and now our heart leaps for joy because God's spirit has breathed into us the, the desire to repent and believe, the ability to repent and believe. So we rejoice in the words of the Lord Jesus in John 10, where he says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. Why do some people hear the voice of Jesus and some people don't? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, I would just bring us back before we close. Remember the context? This, is, this was not just a mere raw theological discourse that Paul was writing to Timothy. This was, this was an explanation as to what the truth is for which people would be saved, all in the context of all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Why would we need to pray that people get saved? Well, certainly, we're required to do more than pray that lost people would be saved. We're, we're obligated to talk to them about who Jesus is and what he has done. But why would we pray? Because, it, because at the end of the day, it is not our savvy, spiffy presentations that wins the day. At the end of the day, it is the sovereign work of God that as we bumble and fumble our ways through uh, presenting the truth of the gospel, that God's spirit might descend upon that conversation, that God's spirit might fall down in that encounter, and that God would open hearts and open eyes 
And they would say, yes, I want that Jesus that you're talking about. You're like, really? Well, I, I did, I, 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 yeah. What's the difference? The difference isn't our splashy presentations. The, the difference isn't the, the moral superiority of the person who does turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the difference is that, is that God's spirit has been at work through our meager gospel words. So that's why we pray. Oh, God, save them. Oh, God, open their eyes. Oh, God, show them their sin. Oh, God, may they see the beauty and glory of the only mediator, the one who ransomed their lives. Oh, God, we pray that they would repent and turn to Jesus. May we be a church who prays that lost people would come to see Jesus for who he really is. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have been so kind to many of us already. And yet that kindness extends even this morning that as you call all people everywhere to repent, to come to a knowledge of the truth, Father, may you give us understanding, may you give us desire, may you give us the ability to turn to Jesus and trust only in him. And may you sustain us in that, that the work that you begin initially in us, that you would cause that work to unfold ongoingly in us, that we would marvel in the one and only Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would not only pray thankfully that you have redeemed us, but that, you would, that we would pray as well that you would redeem still others. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.